groups that would like to go out. We have children's church up through the fourth grade. Uh, the kindergartners go in the back, and first through fourth goes into the multi-purpose room and youth room. And pray for God's blessing on our children. Praise God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This describes every single one of us in this room. At least the wretch, lost, and blind part. Because that's how it all began for each and every one of us. Dead, spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins. Completely blind to God and his kingdom. Could not see the kingdom of God even if we wanted to. And we were wretched, even though we didn't think so. Most of us thought very highly of ourselves. That was me. And if you were to tell me that when I died, I would be going to hell, I would have said, you're crazy. I'm going to heaven because I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But I didn't. I believed in the concept, right? There's a difference. So today, I'm going to be continuing the sermon series that I began a few weeks ago on the doctrines of grace. And if you're not familiar with these, these doctrines of grace are drawn from the Bible. And they answer the question, how can a person be saved? I think that's a pretty important question. How can a person be saved? And the one overarching principle in the doctrines of grace is this. God alone saves sinners. We are saved by God's grace alone, through the gift of saving faith alone, through faith in the completed work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. These doctrines of grace, we used to refer to them um, as tulip, now it's rupep. I loved that, Don. That was great. Rupep. Radical depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, efficacious grace, and persevering grace. They show us the unity of the Trinity in the work of salvation. Now they start with the problem. Radical depravity. And again... That can be said of every single human being that's ever been born with the exception of Jesus. Because the sin of Adam, as we've learned, was imputed or credited to all of his descendants. Such that every human being born after Adam, with the exception of Jesus, has been born a sinner has been born physically alive but spiritually dead. Unable to please God and having no desire to do so. And all of us, every one of us, were once in that dreadful, helpless condition. We were in bondage to our sin nature. And we would have remained that way. But God... Unless God chose by his own will to be gracious to us and to choose us for salvation through his son. That's the only way. Otherwise, we would remain spiritually dead, 
spiritually blind and wretched. So the answer to the terrible problem common to all mankind is brought about by the united work of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It begins with the unconditional election in which the Father in eternity past unconditionally chose a particular number of those radically depraved human beings to be saved through the gracious work of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why he chose me for salvation, I may never know. But he did so according to his own will. He determined to set his love upon me. And he determined that I would be saved through the gracious work of his Son and the Holy Spirit. Because those who were chosen by the Father for salvation were then given to the Son. And the Son was sent by the Father to lay down his life for them. To provide redemption for them by paying the penalty for all of their sins. We call this the doctrine of particular redemption. Which was the topic of our sermon last Sunday. That Jesus died to pay the sins of everyone chosen by God for salvation. Our past, present, and future sins. Praise be to God. Washing us clean. Canceling out the certificate of debt. That we had accrued. Jesus took that upon himself. So that was the work of the Son, the Father choosing, the Son redeeming. And today we're going to look at the doctrine of efficacious grace, also known as effectual calling, whereby the Holy Spirit graciously applies the benefits of Christ's work to the elect whom Jesus has redeemed. Father, Son, now Holy Spirit. Now, if we were following the old TULIP acronym, this doctrine would be called irresistible grace, which refers to the way God calls us to faith in Jesus. But these words are somewhat misleading, for they don't mean what they seem to imply. That God will force us or drag us kicking and screaming into his kingdom. Or, or nor did they mean that God's grace is never resisted by us. I for one resisted for a period of time. But only for a period of time. Because no one can ultimately resist God. Amen? What they mean is that we cannot effectively resist for long. Or to put it another way around, they mean that when God sets his love upon us and calls us to faith in his son Jesus, he does so effectively, succeeding in his purpose to save us. The power and grace of God is overwhelmingly efficacious. It's overwhelmingly effective. As we shall see, the Spirit of God regenerates us, giving us a new nature. And as a result of which, we then believe the gospel, repent of our sin, and put our faith in Christ for our salvation. And we think we did it all. Until we read scripture and come to understand that there was something happening behind the scenes. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith describes this doctrine of efficacious grace. I'm going to read this slowly. It will not be on the screen. It would take too many screens. All of those whom God has chosen and predestined unto life, and these only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit 
out of the state of death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds spiritually and sovereignly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to do that which is good. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. That's a mouthful. That's one sentence by the way. Very important for us to understand here that from our aspect, at least this is my experience at 13, I thought I had finally figured out that I was a sinner and that I needed a Savior. And I finally had figured out that Jesus was the Savior sent by God and I needed to put my faith and trust in Him. In other words, I came freely to Christ I was willing to receive him. But I did not understand that it was God's work that had prepared me and brought me to that point, you see. Because I was this know-it-all little boy, and I just assumed my own intellect had figured this out. But that is not the case. That would not give all glory to God. That would reserve some of the glory for me. Because I figured it out and you didn't. And you'd be surprised how that can affect the way we look at others. Not all Christians are humble as they should be. Shocking, isn't it? Martin Luther in commenting on this topic, wrote these words. Quote, When God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. Isn't that beautiful? The will is changed. So when God chooses to save an individual, His Spirit will work in such a manner that the person will be changed from resisting God's call to desiring and responding to God's call and to run to him for salvation. This doctrine of effectual calling runs throughout the pages of Scripture, including both Old and New Testaments. In the New Testament, it is seen front and center in the opening verses of Gospels and Epistles. Let me just give you a few examples. The Apostle John begins his Gospel By stating that those who receive Jesus Christ are those, quote, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God, not of themselves. This is a clear reference to God's work of regeneration. Paul does much the same. He starts his epistle to the Romans by identifying its recipients as those who are the called of Jesus Christ. And then later, as those called as saints. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul addresses the church as those who are saints by calling. They were, according to 1 Corinthians 1.9, called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this idea of God calling us is throughout the scripture. Peter begins his first letter writing these words, quote, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3, has caused us to be born again. It wasn't our idea, it was his, and he caused it to happen. In his second letter, he states that God called us by his own glory and excellence, 2 Peter 1.3. Jude begins his letter by addressing his readers simply as the called. 
In each of these cases, the writers of these letters front load their mention of effectual calling at the very beginning, stressing the importance of this core doctrine to us as Christians. So there could be no question that the writers of Scripture want us to know that God is the one who effectually calls those chosen by God to come to salvation through putting their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But how does God accomplish that? How does God effectually call? How does God effectually call to salvation? Well, we must start by noting that there are two different calls concerning salvation found in Scripture. The external and the internal call. The former is the call of the gospel, and the latter is the call of the Spirit of God. And listen, both are absolutely necessary for salvation. No one is saved without both the external and the internal call. The external call of the gospel will not in itself save anyone, but no one can be saved without it. It is the internal call of the Spirit that actually saves. Some of you have heard my testimony about hearing the gospel over and over and over again. When I was in sixth and seventh grade, I used to go to a good news club after church, uh, excuse me, after school each Wednesday at a little small church that was uh, about a quarter of a mile from the school. Uh, We'd walk down there and we'd um, you know, do whatever the, the Sister Herleman had us do, you know, games, crafts, fun, snacks. But there'd always be a presentation of the gospel, and there'd always be an altar call at the end. And after a few weeks, I realized, you know what? Um, in the altar call, she'd always say, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you need to pray to receive Christ. And if you don't, you're going to end up going to hell. And like I said, I was a pretty smart kid. At least I thought I was. And I realized, hey, you know what? Heaven's a whole lot better than hell. So I'm going to pray this prayer, right? So I'd go forward, pray the prayer. And then I'd go home and I'd sin. And sin and sin and sin and sin. The next week I'd go forward and pray the prayer. And I'd go home and I'd sin and I'd sin and I'd sin and I'd sin. And after I'd gone forward, I don't know, seven, eight times, Sister Herleman said, Steve, I need to talk to you. And she held me a little while afterwards and said, if you've prayed the prayer, you don't have to go forward. You're saved. You're going to go to heaven. And I was like, oh, okay. But I knew nothing had changed. Nothing had changed in me. You see, all I was doing was checking the box, right? I thought repeating this prayer would, would lead me to heaven. So I'd heard the external call. The external call is the summons to lost sinners found in the gospel of God's grace. The gospel invitation extends a call of salvation to everyone who hears. It invites all men and women, boys and girls, without distinction, to come and drink freely of the water of life and live. It promises salvation to all who will repent and believe in Christ for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. There is the kicker. Because I didn't believe. Because I was still blind, lost, wretched, dead spiritually. I did not have the capacity to believe in Jesus Christ to be my Savior and Lord. So this outward or general call, which is extended to the elect and the non-elect, will not bring sinners to Christ in itself. Why? Because all human beings are born spiritually dead, and their wills are captive to their sin nature. 
They are under bondage. They're under the control of sin. They're unable and unwilling to turn from their evil ways and to turn to Christ for salvation. Consequently, the unregenerate, those who have not been born again, will not respond to the external gospel call to repentance and faith. No amount of external threats, pleadings, or promises will cause spiritually blind, deaf, dead sinners to bow before Christ as Lord and call out to him for salvation. We know this was true because Jesus spent three and a half years preaching the gospel and calling men and women, boys and girls, to repent and believe. Thousands, tens of thousands, saw his miracles, but not many believed in him and trusted in him for salvation. Jesus made this very clear when he spoke to Nick at night, as is recorded in John chapter 3. In fact, open your Bibles up to John chapter 3, if you would. There was this man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In fact, Jesus refers to him later as the teacher of the Jews. So apparently this man had a very high position in the Sanhedrin and was considered, you know, an excellent teacher of the Jewish faith. We'll call him Nick. This man came to Jesus by night, verse 2, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nick starts off by saying, wow, no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. So we know that you're a teacher sent by God. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did Nicodemus ask a question? No. What? He goes up to this rabbi, Yeshua, at night. Note that he didn't want anybody else seeing him coming to visit Yeshua. And he, t- and he starts off by telling him, Oh, we think you came from God because you have mighty power. And Jesus is saying back to him, You have no idea who I am. None. Because you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't perceive it unless you're born again. Again, that describes every single one of us before God caused us to be born again. Here's this brilliant man. Here's this brilliant leader. Here's this teacher of Israel. And he doesn't recognize the kingdom of God when he's staring him in the face. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus answered... Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can I be born when I'm old? Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? If I had been Jesus at that point, I would have rolled my eyes. You guys all know that because you've seen it, right? My wife does not like it when I do that to her, right? And I don't think Jesus did that to Nicodemus. But in Jesus' response, right, he's like, you got to be kidding me, right? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So again, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, Nick, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you're only born in the flesh. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born by the work of the Spirit. And short of that, you can't even perceive the kingdom. 
you can't recognize Jesus for who he is. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation, extends to them an inward call in addition to the outward call that is contained in the gospel message. The internal call is a special call. The Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner which inevitably brings us to faith in Christ. The inward changes done in that person enable them to understand and believe spiritual truth. The Spirit creates within them a new heart, a new nature. And this is accomplished through regeneration or new birth by which the sinner is made new and given spiritual life. Their will is then set free so that the sinner comes to Christ of their own free choice, that being made possible by the work of the Spirit of God. Because they are given a new nature, and because their mind is enlightened, they understand and believe the gospel. The renewed sinner freely and willingly turns to Christ and receives him as both Savior and Lord. Those who were once spiritually dead are drawn to Christ by the external call of the gospel and the inward supernatural call of the Spirit. And note this, the Spirit of God is in no way dependent upon the help or cooperation of the one being called. The Spirit's inward call is always effective in bringing the sinner to faith in Christ. It is for this reason that we speak of the Spirit's work as being efficacious, effective, or refer to it as irresistible grace, because all chosen by the Father and given to the Son to redeem will be brought to saving faith and will be saved by the efficacious grace of the Spirit. Praise be to God. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't find Jesus. He wasn't missing. (laughs) He found me. I was blind, but he opened my blind eyes so that I could see. So how does God do this? How does he effectively call sinners to salvation? Well, again, by means of that outward call of the gospel combined with the inward work of the Holy Spirit, making it possible for those who are spiritually dead to become spiritually alive. So I want to look at the inward work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're just going to touch on this this morning, obviously. We would need a seminar to cover it in detail. But listen to how the scriptures describe the components of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing sinners to salvation. Each of these elements is part of this work of efficacious grace by the Holy Spirit. The first one we'll look at is conviction of sin. Effectual calling begins with the internal work of the Holy Spirit in bringing conviction of sin. You've heard me say this before. For anyone to be converted, they must first be convicted of sin. And the Spirit has come into the world for that very purpose. To convince sinners of their desperate need for salvation. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 8. Here Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit's work will include heart-piercing conviction. No one will ever be saved until they come to know that they're lost and facing judgment. No one will call upon the name of the Lord until they know they're guilty before God and they're in need of a Savior. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. To create a sense of alarm within the unconverted heart. Just as he did on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Remember that? 
the apostles went out of the upper room and they preached the gospel to a city filled with hundreds of thousands of Jews. They go up on the Temple Mount. They're preaching the gospel to hundreds of thousands. And when the crowd heard the gospel, Luke tells us that some responded This is the way he puts it. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? Acts 2.37. The gospel had penetrated to their heart. Convicting them. Of being the ones who were responsible for the death of their Messiah. The death of Jesus Christ. And they cry out, what must we do? And that's what God did in our hearts. Revealed the fact that we were sinners. That we needed a Savior. So that we could cry out for that Savior. Conviction of our sin and guilt prepares us to call out to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. No one is going to go to the doctor and seek treatment or medication unless they think they have something wrong with them. Well, I know there's some people that do, but we're not going to count them. Well, actually, they think they have something wrong with them, too. They just don't, right? And that's something wrong with them. So, (laughs) we're not going to seek the cure. If we don't know, we have a problem. So that's where the gospel message starts, right? You're a sinner. I am a sinner. We need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. God provided one. So it starts with conviction of sin. Second, the effectual call also includes the gracious drawing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit must overcome all human resistance to the gospel and powerfully apprehend the sinner, effectively drawing them to Christ. The word to draw in the Greek is a vivid word that is used elsewhere in Scripture for dragging a person towards a destination. Since no sinner on their own ever seeks After God, the Holy Spirit must intervene and effectively draw them to Christ. Jesus told his disciples, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about, don't you? No one, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father or can come to me unless the Father draws him. And how does the Father draw him? The Father has sent his Spirit into the world to do just that very thing. Again, this stresses the inability of the sinner to come to faith in Christ without the divine intervention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overcomes the resistance of sinners and draws them to Christ. In some cases, that drawing is very gentle. In other cases, like the man who wrote Amazing Grace, it can be pretty extreme. But God is going to do what God needs to do to bring those he has set his love upon into his family. Amen? Third, efficacious grace includes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit regenerated, or born again by the Spirit. This aspect of the eternal call raises the spiritually dead sinner to spiritual life. This is the first resurrection, if you will. We are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again of the Spirit. This new birth gives the person new eyes to see the truth, new ears to hear it, and most importantly, a new heart 
to receive it. This is absolutely necessary if an unrepentant sinner is going to answer the call of the gospel and believe in Christ for salvation. The heart must be changed. And this is exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John 3, 3. That unless one is born again by the Spirit, they cannot see, perceive, hear the kingdom of God. They must first be brought from spiritual death into spiritual life in order to believe. John states this more than once, but he he states it again in his first epistle in 1 John 5, 1. He says it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice this. The has been born of God precedes Believing. It's very clear in the Greek. Believes, pistuo in the Greek, is the present tense, refers to an ongoing life of faith in Christ. But born again, geneno, geneo in the Greek, is the perfect tense. So it describes something that happened in the past with continuing results into the present and the future. The meaning for us is that one is first born of God, then believes in Jesus Christ. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because guess what? A dead person cannot believe. In fact, a dead person can't do much of anything. Except stink. Thank you. And so in order for us to believe, we must first be born again, brought to life spiritually. And then be given the gift of saving faith, which leads us to repent of our sinful ways and believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So the the radical change that brings us to that place has all been wrought by the Spirit of God because God has set his love on us to be his people. Without that, none of this would have occurred. The father predetermined that he would love you, set his love upon you, sent his son to die for you, sent his spirit to cause you to be born again. And we then Respond to this with repentance and faith. The immediate effect of divine regeneration is that the sinner now abhors the sin that they once practiced. And the sinner now trusts in Christ for the forgiveness that they need. This involves two actions, which are actually two parts of the same experience that we call Conversion. Conversion involves turning away from sin, which is repentance, and turning to Christ, which is faith or belief. Now note this. These are both things that you and I do. We repent. We believe. God does not repent for us, and he does not believe for us. We must repent. We must turn from our sin. We must believe. We must put our faith and trust in Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't done this yet, do it. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Do not delay. Do it today. And if you do, it's because God desires you to do so. And he's drawing you to do so. But we must do this. 
But we do it because of God's love that he set upon us. Because of his spirit drawing us to himself. His spirit revealing to us that we're sinners and we need a savior. Because our heart has been changed by God along with our nature and desires. We then see the evil of sin and we abhor it. We turn from it. And we also see the love and the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, his son. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we finally understand what the cross is all about. It's about God dying in our place. Paying the penalty for our sins so that they can be removed from us. To be remembered no more by God. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts and gives us the gift of saving faith. Just as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Almost done here. I know I can smell the chili from the back, so I know uh, people are ready to dive in. Very familiar passage. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at a few verses here. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. God is very clear here. Just as I said earlier, all of us were dead spiritually because of our trespasses and sins. All of us were living according to the ways of this world. All of us, whether we realize it or not, were following Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is working overtime in all of humanity. The things we see on the news, the things that we see people do, um, you know, just horrendous acts. Today's 9-11, 21st anniversary of men flying aircraft into buildings simply to kill people. I mean, it boggles the mind, or does it? Right? A couple of days ago, someone took a samurai sword and cut off the head of his ex-girlfriend. Not far from here. I mean, the world is a wicked place because it's filled with wicked people who need to be saved by the grace of God. You were dead in your trespasses. You were walking in them. You were following the ways of this world. You were following Satan, whether you knew it or not. That was you. That was me. But God, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, note that, rich in mercy, not stingy with his mercy, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Note that. We didn't love him. We were dead. If anything, we were running from him. Right? Because I'm going to be my own master. Right? I'm not going to bow to another. That's insidious in this nation, isn't it? As soon as somebody wants to proclaim something, the authorities want to tell us we have to do something, what's our response? No! Freedom! Right? That's the same way we respond to God. But God loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God made us alive 
together with Christ. He chose to do that. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. You understand what this means? All praise and glory should be unto him. We can take no credit for being in Christ. It was not our doing. Yes, we repented. Yes, we believed. But we did so because of God's irresistible grace. Because of his effectual calling. Because of his efficacious grace. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace, oh, what do you know? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why did God do it this way? Well, first of all, we don't get to ask him that question, right? Unless you want to hear like Job did. (laughs) Who are you, oh man, to question me, right? So, Why did God do it this way? First and foremost, because he's God and he can do it any way he wants. Okay? But why did he do it this way? So that he would receive all the glory. Which begs the question, are you living as though you understand that he deserves all the glory? Are you living your life now to glorify him? Is that your primary purpose for existence? Because listen to me, that's what we were created to do. To glorify him. And if you understand what God has done in saving you and bringing you to himself, you are going to respond by wanting now to live for him. To glorify him. This, of course, is not the end of the gracious work of the Spirit of God in our lives, but only the beginning. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in persevering grace. But I want to close with the one big idea here regarding efficacious grace or effectual calling. And it is this. When God chooses to save an individual, his spirit will work in such a manner as to bring conviction of their sin, drawing them to God and causing them to be born again so that they will now willingly repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It is the gracious gift that comes to us. From a loving God, a loving Savior, who was willing to lay down his life to make this possible for us. And take it up again. Be resurrected. Ascend into heaven and send the Holy Spirit to carry out the work. To apply it to our lives. To call us individually to himself. And to cause us to be born again. God is sovereign. God is powerful. No one can stand in his way. No one can thwart his will. But God is also love. And he has chosen to set his redeeming love upon us. So he will also effectually call us. And we, thanks be to God, will run to him for salvation. Run to him for the salvation that he provides in his son. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And my prayer is that every one of you in this room would experience this if you have not already. But you would also remember that now you are his. You belong to him. You've been bought and paid for. 
He paid a great price for you. And he did so so that you would now live for him. Not for yourself. Not for me. But for him. You would live to glorify him. And enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to be reminded of the incredible work that you have done in saving a people for yourself. How amazing it is, Father God, that before we were ever born, before the world was even formed, you chose a people who you would save out of the bondage of sin, a people who you would then redeem through the work of your son on the cross, a people to whom you would send your spirit to change our hearts, to cause us, Father God, to repent and turn from our sin and to run to you, to call upon Jesus for salvation, to confess him as Savior and Lord and to be born again. To now live our lives in such a way, Father, that we are endeavoring to please and glorify you, our Lord, our Master. Father, I pray if there's any in this room that have not yet experienced this, that today would be the day of their salvation. That today, Father God, you would draw them to yourself. For the rest of us, Father God, may not one day go by that we are not gripped by the amazing grace that we have been beneficiaries of. Not one day go by that we're not gripped by your love and your grace and your mercy as seen in the sacrifice of your son. Not one day go by. We are not gripped by our responsibility now to live lives to please and glorify you. Help us in this, we pray. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor.